We're going to pray for, um, we're going to pray, welcome back to, I see some students' faces today that you've joined us uh, back as you come. Let's welcome back our University of Guelph students. I know we're going to see more of you, um, and a few of them are, are actually worshiping, I think, on the green today, uh, an outdoor uh, time of worship, so we're going to celebrate with them. But would you just join me as we pray, as we thank God for this uh, beautiful place that he's given to us as a gift. I thank you, Father, as we come before you today and we ask, uh, Lord, and we ask and thank you for your goodness. We thank you that uh, we can see your presence here in nature, in your creation, and we thank you for the graciousness of a host and a place where we can worship today. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that you loved us so much that you pursue us as people. And that you have not uh, given up on us, even though we consistently and, and constantly turn against you. God, you do not give up on us. And Lord, you're faithful. You're faithful to yourself. You're faithful to your son. You're faithful to the cross and we're faithful to the resurrection. Lord, your promises are new every day. And your goodness is good, is good to us every day. So, Father, we just thank you for, we pray for the university students who are moving back this weekend. We pray for safety and travels. We thank you for those who have joined us here today. We just thank you and pray for that they had a great summer wherever they were serving or working this, uh, in their lives. We thank you, uh, Father. We pray today for the things of this world that are uh, not uh, happening and not, not happening well. We, we, we look at Houston and we see all the, the mess that is there. We pray for the lives that need rebuilding. We pray, uh, Father, for the, the healing that needs to go on in that, uh, in that community, in that uh, city. We also look in, across the world, and even in a quieter way, um, a, a flooding that happened in, in the areas of India. And Lord, much of that didn't receive um, the same kind of publicity but there was similar loss of life and uh, displacement. And Lord, we know that you are not uh, cold to any of it. That you are there in working in uh, those places and that your church is, is there in those, in those spaces. And we ask today, Father, for you to work in those, uh, in those communities, in those neighborhoods, in those towns, in those cities, in incredible ways. We ask for the, the families who have lost loved ones to find comfort in you and that you would uh, be the, the great comforter that you are in this, in this time and we pray for them. We pray today, uh, Lord, asking for your, uh, for your grace to be shown upon us as we look forward to the fall and we see uh, many people getting baptized and, and the excitement of uh, our missional communities coming back together, many of them some two or three new starting ones. God, we pray that you would impress upon our hearts the, the urgency of the, of the call to serve and to witness and to live. And yet, at the same time, that burden is not upon our shoulders to save people or to work ourselves to the bone, but it says in your word that your burden is light and so that we would rest in you. And would that be the nature of our church, that we would be urgent in our call urgent in our lives and yet uh, trusting you not doubting people resting 
people. And this tension, Lord, we sometimes struggle with. But we know, God, that you have placed both in the Scriptures, in, in your Word, and in our lives that we are meant to work and we are meant to rest. And we thank you for a chance even today to just stop and to pause and to know that you are good and to, to worship at your feet. And so we pray for your word to go out today. We pray that your word would be strong in power. And we thank you for our kids who are going to be just playing and enjoying. And as we visit, Lord, would this be your family today um, enjoying each other? We glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, just a quick uh, reminder, if you, were, you missed it earlier, washrooms are right here in this building. If you want your kids, this is casual. If your kids want to play in the, in the sandbox, please take them to the sandbox. <laughs> uh, you don't have to feel like this is something like sit them down and keep them seated. Like This is a chance to just listen and to we put a sound system in this year to uh, make it easier to hear hopefully and uh, so we just encourage you to, to relax enjoy yourselves and uh, as God has uh, spoken and we're going to hear God's word uh, spoken to us today I just want to invite you to open your Bibles with us if you if you brought them with you if you if not you got I think your smartphone hopefully this service out here uh, you can you can turn to Acts 27 and 28 if you've been uh, journeying with us throughout this whole summer uh, and a bit of the spring, you've, today we're actually going to come to the close of this book. It's an amazing book called the Book of Acts. And uh, we're going to find out a few things, but uh, I was just thinking this week as I was, many of us have been sort of transfixed uh, as we've been watching the news of what's been going on in the U.S. Uh, with Houston and the city there. Um, Many of you have been watching the, flood, the flooding. I certainly have. And how many of you have ever been close, could you say, to a hurricane, a tropical storm, or a tornado in your life? We say close, like a, a mile or two, you've, you've been, uh, been around one. You see one? I see some hands there. Yeah, like I've never been, I've seen the, the wreckage after a tornado has gone through my areas. Of a, but I've never been close to one. But when I've heard them recorded or people talk about it, it sounds like most of the time it sounds really cool. I think Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz made it look a little bit better than it really is because it actually is a, a terrifying experience to be around wind of that nature and all the things whipping around. It's, and the sound that's described is that of a freight train, that you're standing right beside a freight train passing through. And this power is just incredible. And I mentioned this uh, today to start us off with because there are two parallel events in the book of Acts, if, you're, if you've been watching with us, that sort of bookend, they, they're at the beginning and the end. In, in Acts 2, when the Spirit of God comes upon the disciples, they, there is this mention of the Spirit coming as a mighty rushing wind, which is a little bit of an underwhelming description, I would say, because the idea, the, the picture is that of a tornado. That's the, that's the feeling, that's the sense, this tornado that comes down as the Spirit of God descends. And then what you're going to find as we finish the book today is there is a 
basically a hurricane. The story is about a tropical storm as uh, Paul is, is shipwrecked here. It's a mighty, mighty wind. And so these bookends are the backdrop of a story, of the story of the, the church being built. Where It starts in Acts 2 with a, a tornado and it ends in Acts 28, 27 with a, with a hurricane. And there's a picture of God's power fully on display. It, both in salvation and in creation, displaying the glory of God. That's the idea. Now, if you were not with us last week, one of our elders, Jeff, uh, he kind of laid out for us a little bit about how, how Paul gets on a, on a ship here in this, in this passage that we're going to read about. He led us through a, the story of how Paul was imprisoned, how he appears before many of the major Jewish and Roman authorities, the powers, and much of the last sections of, of the book of Acts is talking about Paul's sufferings. I don't know if you get this sense, but Paul, the last number of chapters, things have not been going well, like for Paul on a human level. He's been imprisoned, he's been thrown in jail, he's, uh, and, and you think he comes to this place where he, they, he's brought before Herod and he appeals to Caesar. And as a Roman citizen, what this means is that he gets a direct audience to present his case before Caesar. Now, that sounds like a good, a good thing. But the way it works is that you had to abide by whatever Caesar said. There was no appeal process. You were done. Whatever if, and I'll just let you know, the Caesars of history were not emotionally stable individuals throughout history. They were not known for being uh, consistent they were not known, you were hoping that they were on a good day uh, when, when you met them. But that's what Paul does. He appeals to Caesar. And so what that, ha- what that means is that he gets put on a ship. He gets, uh, it's not a ship directly to Rome. It's, he's, putting on, he's been put on a ship, uh, it's like a trading ship. And so the, so the story, uh, as it goes along, we're going we're gonna to read about it. And I, wa- I want to read to you, just as we begin... Acts 27, and it says, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners, so he's not alone here, to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So we're just going to pause for a second here, because um, this story begins, there's something special even in this person. Why do, they, why do they start with this detail? What's unique about this person that Paul is being uh, basically put into the care of. Now, this Julius fellow is a member of uh, basically the troops. They were a special guard, the Augustan guard, who were known as the bodyguards of Caesar. Now, they rotated around. They weren't always assigned, but they were basically Caesar's bodyguards. And what we find here is that he is, Paul, during Paul's years in Rome awaiting trial, Julius most certainly would have been a powerful witness. These are the elite forces. And so if a testimony needed to be given of what happened, Julius's testimony would have been a valued testimony above uh, other soldiers, above other people. And so he's been placed into this place so that Paul's testimony would be recognized and received in the court and brought 
into being a place where it's being trusted. Now, the point of this, why am I even stopping for a second here, is that I want you to see is that the, the, the gospel on this trip has already started. God's work, we're going to talk about God's work today. It's already started right here, right now. None of these details are just kind of like happening by chance. And so as we read further in here, it's such a long chapter. I'm going, to, I'm going to synopsize today a little bit more. But as we read further, we're going to find out that this boat trip of sorts is, holds a paradox for understanding suffering. Because this is what Paul's, the last few chapters of, of Paul's life is about, suffering. Not much goes right. And this is the struggle that each one of us face in our lives that when we think about difficulties and struggles and pain, we often see this, um, I would say most of the time, many of us struggle with this and see it as a sign that God is not with us. That we have done something wrong to, in order to displease him, that he is in some way punishing us. And that's a common thought when, when things are not going right. We kind of have this sense that if everything's going well, God's happy with my life. And when things are not going well, I've done something to make him mad. But as I was reading this week in these two chapters, I was struck with this. It was a paradox. And a paradox is two statements that seem contradictory in nature. But when they are investigated, they may well be found true. They seem contradictory on the surface. And so this paradox is, is something that we got to grapple with today. And that it's two things. One is this. God is completely in control of all circumstances. And number two, my actions matter. That's the paradox. You know, we got to continue in the story to actually see this. During this, during this time, the ship is progressing port to port, picking up and dropping off cargo. But now we find out it is fall season and the winter time is, uh, is approaching rapidly. Now the danger of ship travel from November to March is incredibly significant. Basically what happens in most circumstances is that ships went into, went into dock and you stayed there for four months. You didn't travel around because the great danger is that you would become shipwrecked. The storms uh, during this, this season were huge. And so to travel during those months on the oceans were, uh, were a risky proposition. And so, so what we see here in verse 9 is that Paul warns the crew of the dangers of traveling, of, of, not, of just going out and doing this, of, of, of uh, pursuing or going further and not docking up the ship. But the centurion hasn't yet quite built the relationship with Paul to trust him. He listens to the, the captain of the ship who, we get a sense, he, he says, we can, per, we can bust through this. We, we can make it. And Paul gives advice, but they don't listen to him. And so they make the unwise decision to keep sailing, to sail on to Phoenix, a harbor off the island of Crete. And so if you were to jump down to in verse 13, what you're going to find is that their fears are realized. A nor'easter, which is basically akin to a hurricane, hits the ship and drives them out of control. 
they are floating along. That's what it says there. They're trying to put down anchors just to slow down their floating. They're dragging themselves. They're, they're trying to stay in, in open water but not be sucked out into the middle of uh, Pacific Ocean. Atlantic Ocean, sorry. Let's get the right uh, ocean there. Okay? So they're, they're doing their best to not get sucked out into everything, but they're also doing their best not to run aground. And so there's incredible detail to this story. You, you, you look at it and they're talking about all the things they're doing to, to stop them. And you, then we notice again, the pronoun we is happening in this story. What's happening? Luke is right here on the ship with, with Paul. Luke is here, present. He's an eyewitness to this encounter. He's seeing all the things that the sailors are doing to try to prevent being shipwrecked. And what we see is they try every trick of the trade and then in desperation, they throw everything overboard. They try to be as light as possible. They throw their food overboard. And after uh, days and days, you say, you get a sense, they're now at a place where they're floating, the storm is not letting up, and they have no food. People are not in happy moods when this kind of thing happens. And they're, they're becoming desperate. Um, it's so, so it's here that Paul stands up and he communicates a vision that he's received. So Paul doesn't, he's not a sailor. So what does Paul do? He goes off and is alone with the Lord and he receives a vision. And it says here that he receives a promise, verse 21, that an, an angel has appeared to him and then a promise that he's going to appear before Caesar. He's not going to die in this situation. And the promise is that these folks who are with them, the sailors, the the, the, the uh, centurions, the soldiers are not going to die either. They're going to stay, if they stay on the ship, they're going to be with, uh, safe. And so he couples this good news with some bad news. The bad news, there's going to be a shipwreck. We're going to, we're going to, this ship's going to be lost, but you, we're, going to, we're not going to die. That's the news. And so they, shortly thereafter, they find themselves in this bad state of affairs, the the water is getting shallower and shallower. They put down little measuring sticks and it's not like, it's like 15, 10. And they know, like they come to the end and it's like, this is going to, we're going to shipwreck. And in desperation, the sailors decide to um, abandon ship and leave the soldiers, leave, the, leave everyone else on. They, they have a lifeboat on board and they're about to cut it down. And Paul here, what happens is basically the sailors are gonna, they're deciding to make their lives priority and save themselves, which is pretty much human nature, right? Save yourself in that circumstance. And here's what I want to, I want to pause for a second in the story, because here's the paradox. Paul here is completely trusting in God's plan. He's got a promise, he's got a vision. He's got what the angel is, and, he's, and, he, and he has this trusting God through this incredible storm. And if God is completely in control and he's promised salvation, why would, anyone, uh, why would anyone's actions matter? That's the question I, I was thinking about this week. Why does it matter what anyone actually does? If God has promised this, what else matters? Why does Paul stand up at this point in time 
and attempt to, to have the sailors uh, not abandon the ship. Does anyone act, anyone's actions really matter in the big, big picture of God's plan? You would think not. If you're just uh, leaning into the one statement, God is in control of all things, right? But that's not how Paul acts in this circumstance. He warns them, he warns them that if they leave the ship, the circumstances that they've been placed in right now, they're leaving the promise and their lives are in peril. In essence, Paul acts as though there's human responsibility in actions. And so this is a, a deep mystery of Scripture. And I thought about that at a light picnic fu function. Uh, but this is uh, how we end. The book ends. So we're going to be faithful to the book here. But it's a deep mystery of Scripture that within the, the pages of this, of this book, is there, there is an undeniable message that God is in control. And yet, as human beings, our, our actions matter. Some people have wrongly understood Scripture to teach that God is sovereign and that nothing we do matters and we just wait out this life, see what God has in store. You know, there's a story of a, at a, a meeting of some Baptist leaders back in the late 1700s. There was this newly ordained minister who stood up to argue for the value of overseas missions. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Now that young man's name was William Carey. He's widely viewed as the father of overseas missions movements. What if William had, had heeded those words and sat down? I would say that his actions, wouldn't you, mattered in the world? That people's lives were changed? Because his act, he actually acted upon what God had called him to. And so what we think about here and what we read about here, I want to ask you this. Friends, how you live your life, how you trust God, what you do is impacted by these statements and how you hold them in tension today. Whether or not you're going to believe that God is in control, and yet at the same time believe that your actions matter. There's a sense in the scriptures that 100% God is in control, and 100% your actions matter. It's not 50-50. Hoping that they get their other, the other half that, right, right? What we get a revelation from Scripture is that both are true. And we hold this mystery and tension together. I, wanna, I don't want to just leave that statement. I want to answer it with this question. Is what does it look like to hold these two things in tension? And I believe the, the, book of, the end of the book of Acts really does answer that question for us. It, it gives us a picture of how to hold it in tension a little bit in our lives. And the first, way, the first thing, though, that we have to do is, is this idea of embracing sovereignty. And I, I use the word embrace because you have to actually um, hold on to it tightly. 
It's not like, uh, I hope God's in control. I hope, it, well, he seems like he's in control right now. Everything's going well. But, you know, when this is happening, I don't know. Embracing sovereignty means holding God, holding into a deep trust that God is in control of all things, even the hard stuff. No, Paul does not let the, the storm make him doubt God's control. In fact, he saw the storm as God's arranging of the opportunity for a preaching opportunity for him. He saw it as he was placed on that ship for that opportunity to speak into, the, into that situation. For him to share his hope in God. And verse 37 here in, in chapter 27, it tells us that there's 275 other people on the boat. 275 people are there. Some are prisoners like Paul. Some are soldiers. Some are just travelers. You, just, you thought you were on to book a, a trip. And you're just like paying your way to get from this city to that city. You didn't want to get on the boat with Paul. Uh, that's bad news for you if you just thought you were just traveling along. Yet at that moment, they have one thing in common. They're all terrified. They're all thinking that they're about to die. Right? But here's what happened. Paul is a fellow traveler. Paul's not outside of that situation. Paul is a fellow traveler, which gives him a uniquely compelling platform for which to share the gospel. As a Christian, if you are one here today, God doesn't just shield you from the storm of your life. He doesn't shield you because he allows you to go through these same things that everyone else is going through. Okay? If you live in a bubble that people's lives are great, which Facebook sometimes tells you, everyone's lives are portrayed much better than they actually are, right? But if you live in a bubble that everyone's lives are better than yourself, it's not true. But he allow, what happens is God allows you and I to go through the same things that everyone else goes through so that you can show them hope. The hope that you have when the storm of life hits. What it's like to experience the presence of God in your life when things are not good. Because, i demonstrate this in a second here. Because what happens is that if you demonstrate the presence of God in the storm of your life, it's more powerful. It's actually more powerful than if you were to put yourself outside of it and try to speak into somebody's situation. Like if you are trying to, like somebody's having a rough time and you've never really uh, experienced that situation, you might stand back and give them some advice, right? You might uh, be sympathetic. But it is powerful when you've experienced something and you, or you're experiencing something with somebody and you're talking with somebody in that moment as you, as you join them as a fellow traveler in this life. Practically speaking, it's when you're on the, cancer, on the cancer bed and you can say, my body is in pain, but my spirit is filled with hope because one day God's going to wipe away every tear from my eye and, I'm, and the pain that I'm experiencing is, not, is nothing compared to the glory that God's going to reveal in me. That's like rubber hits the road moments. It's when you are at the graveside of a child 
or you're in the midst of your third year of trying to have a baby and you're feeling like you're going to give up hope. Or you had your fourth miscarriage. And you could say, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who heals all your diseases. And he forgives all your sins and he redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good. It's for those people who are when they've been treated wrongly or when you've been forgotten about or you're fired for doing the right thing that you could proclaim to people who experience the same situation as you, though my father and my mother have forgotten me, Lord, you take me in. You have lifted my head above my enemies. It is easier to proclaim hope as a fellow traveler than it is to call to people when you're outside the storm. I see some nods. It's true, isn't it? And even some of us here, like we feel like we're in a situation where we've messed up so many times. We've made mistakes. We've sinned. It's when that you've been broken by sin that you can proclaim the sweetness of God's grace. If you think you're not, uh, that in some ways you are deserving of, your, of God choosing you. Don't, don't buy into the lie that you need a perfect life to share the gospel with other people. Contrary to the prosperity gospel, it's your place of weakness. It's not, that's your strength. It's, it's the best platform for your testimony. So God makes you a fellow traveler with those who experience hardship so that he can display his hope in you. So that's God's embracing sovereignty, okay? That's, that's the one side. What's the second side? And, that, and the second one is that we embrace our sentness. And that's a sort of a modern word that's kind of, I don't even know if it's a word any, really. But we talk about uh, a lot, Church of City, about being this identity of missionary. And really what it means is that we believe that we are sent ones. And if we embrace our sentness, it does actually mean something about our actions, that our actions matter. Because if you go to the very end of the book, and we're going to jump over a whole bunch of stuff. I'm going to let you read that today because we're going to finish here. You're going to go to the very end of the book, the last two, um, two verses. And this is how Luke ends the book of Acts. He says this, Paul, he lived there two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all his boldness and without hindrance. The end. That's the end of the book. And you say, great, but what happens when he stands before Caesar? We don't know. We do know that there was a letter that Paul wrote to the Romans that indicated that he hoped to go from Rome to Spain. He ought to be let go to go preach, be the first one to preach Christ there. Well, does he make it to Spain? Acts doesn't tell us. It actually ends in a cliffhanger. The book is a cliffhanger. You aren't told what happens to Paul and his dreams and all the things he wants to do. Why does this happen? Why is the, why is the story ended in this way? 
because the story is not about Paul. If we saw the end of the story, you'd go, man, that, that re resolved really nicely. I like that story. I like, I like it that, you know, Paul, Paul is a hero. But that makes Paul the hero of Acts. And this story is not about Paul. It's about the spirit and the gospel. That's what Acts 2 indicates. In fact, we know from hero that from history, we believe that we have enough back history that Paul, it does seem like he was released. He does get to Spain. Then he's re-arrested re there and he's beheaded. So that's, not, that's the, what we, we think happened in history. It's not a pretty ending. It's not, about, not, the, not the Hollywood sort of finish it off nice, nice and neat uh, ending. But why doesn't Luke record all this? Why does he, why does he leave it with this, hang, uh, this hanging story? Because it's, it's Luke's way of saying to the Nero's of the world, you can kill and imprison Paul, but you can't stop the gospel. You can't stop the Spirit of God. Paul is dead, but the Spirit remains. And so what does this mean for us? It means that we, we continue the story of the book of Acts today. Because the Spirit continues to build His church. And so the entire book is about God's plan to build His church and how we, as a church, should think about our human responsibility as sent ones. So we don't save people. We don't do any of that. Thank the Lord. That's not on our shoulders. That burden has never been put on us. But we are people who God uses in, this, in the story. That's our responsibility. You cannot take your life seriously as a Christian and back out of your responsibility as a sent one. Okay? One day you will stand before the Lord. You may not stand in ultimate judgment of hell, but you will give an account of the gifts that he's given to you and he will ask you, why did you waste the responsibilities that I gave to you? That's the parable of the talents in scripture. And so we leave, we, it means that we live sent in our lives. In what ways? We live, we live sent in our inviting. And this fall, I ask in you, what non-believer in your life, what uh, seeker, what person are you going to take a risk on inviting into your life in a deeper way? Are you going to invite out to your missional community? Are you going to take a risk and invite them out to bring them out to reunion for the very first time? Who are you sent to? If you don't take responsibility for the person that God has put in your life, who else will? It's not my job to reach your neighbor. It's not Fee's job. I'll just pick Fee. You, you love the front row, man. That's what it is. To reach your coworker. That is your responsibility. So we live, we live sent in our inviting. We live sent in our generosity. It, it, asks, it asks us the question this this uh, fall in what ways are we going to live below our means so that we could, maybe for you, it's to begin to tithe in your life. You're like, I have no space for that. Or to be able to even accumulate some excess so that when you have God lay something in your heart in terms of uh, being able to, to uh, love on a neighbor, that you don't have to like wonder, I have no money for that. You say, God, thanks for providing. I can do this right now. Give that opportunity right over to him. 
So we live sent in our inviting. We live sent in our generosity. And we live sent in our faith. I want you to believe God for the people of your life. Parents, pray boldly for the teenagers and the college students who, that God would raise up the next generation. That the next generation is going to get it and they're going to, they're going to leave the church when they leave the, the high school time. And they would be the leaders in, bringing, in calling our nation back to God and they will help continue to finish the Great Commission. Complete the Great Commission. Would you join me in believing God for the future? That's what we're asking you. Not just for this church, but for the mission of, the, of God in this world. Friends, Acts doesn't end because it's still being written. It ends in a cliffhanger because you are writing the next chapter, you and I, this church. And Paul got the gospel to Rome. Who's going to get the gospel to your community? I don't know that. I'm praying that it'll be something, it'll be something that God just completely stirs in your heart. But the Spirit of God that was blowing in Paul's heart, this is what I know. The Spirit of God that was blowing in Paul's heart is the same Spirit that remains today, that lives in this church, in our lives, and He is capable of fulfilling His mission through us. Is this true? Yes, it's true. Let's pray. God, we pray for faith today. We pray for belief today that these words would not just be uh, from things that we just kind of let go out of one ear, but Lord, that in our challenges as we've finished this book together, we have been incredibly challenged on what does it mean to live mission, live out as sent ones in our lives, the identity. And I pray not in condemnation, but in encouragement today over this uh, over Church the City. I pray that you would help us with other churches in the city to reach Guelph, that we would pray in, in, in Guelph as it is in heaven, and that we would believe that many will come and be baptized and come to new life in Christ this fall, this year. We look forward to what you're doing and we trust in you. Help us to live out this paradox that you, we believe in you and we trust that you are in control of all things and that our lives matter, that our actions matter, and that our responsibility matters. We love you, God. We trust in you alone. And we pray this in the name of mighty name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. <laughs>